Welcome to this special from NeosAz.com, the War of the Worlds 50th Anniversary Broadcast, part of our annual War of the Worlds Week celebration for 2018. I am Matt coming to you from NeosAz Studios in Orlando, Florida, and I am very excited about this particular special. If you've been listening to our War of the Worlds Week events over the years, you know that my fandom for War of the Worlds is what launched this annual event, namely my love for the audio drama. I'm a huge fan of audio dramas already as it is. I'm an even bigger fan of the 1938 Mercury Theater on the Air broadcast of the War of the Worlds. But that wasn't the first audio version of that play that I heard. It was this version, the 1988 NPR broadcast of The War of the Worlds, the broadcast written and produced in celebration of the 50th anniversary of that 1938 event. Now, my very first exposure to the radio version of the story of any kind was in grade school in a reading class textbook. I think it was sixth grade. It was somewhere around there. It was before junior high, which was a thing before middle schools existed. So it was definitely no later than sixth grade. But my point is, in this textbook, the example it used for a script format writing, for the script format writing, better said, was the 1938 War of the World script. We spent about, at best, two minutes on this lesson. I lived in a small town. I went to public school. I'm guessing our teacher didn't see any need to teach any of us Hicks how to write a script. It wasn't likely we were ever going to go anywhere and need that knowledge. At least that's my assumption in this. I might be wrong. But what the teacher did take some time to talk about was that supposed panic that this broadcast caused. We actually got quite a bit of that story, a lot more rather than the lesson that the textbook was trying to convey. I grew up in an interesting town. What can I say? I will say, though, that that lesson might have done its job because that story stuck with me and I ended up reading that script, even though it wasn't assigned to us to read. And if you had any clue of what a terrible student I was in regards to completing assignments, that would actually be a very impressive fact to hear. I was instantly obsessed by the idea of this radio play, the performance, the broadcast, the supposed panic. Now, I didn't spend much time reading up on it further or studying it, certainly not like I do now every year, but I never did forget it, like, ever during that time at that young age. Now, years later, 1988, the 50th anniversary of the broadcast was coming. It was late in October, and by the most random moment of luck, I somehow had the TV turned on to the news. Not something I did as a kid, and not something I do as an adult. But nonetheless, the news was on. And then, the story about the upcoming public radio airing of the War of the World's 50th anniversary recreation started. It was one of those moments that's like a shot in a movie that where I would have been center frame with my eyes open wide, my jaw dropped, and then the camera zoom in on me as the background behind me zoomed away, if you can picture that. I, that has to have been the look on my face when I heard what they were talking about, because here it finally was. It was my chance to hear the script, the, the, the one that I read years ago, finally get the chance to hear what was behind all this urban legend that I wouldn't or couldn't seem to forget all about those years and to this day i remember that pre-recorded segment ending and the local newswoman saying and you can hear that broadcast on philadelphia's own 90.1 fm this sunday night at eight o'clock with a freshly opened 120 minute cassette tape and a newly cleaned cassette recording head i went to my bedroom shut the door tuned my stereo into 90.1 FM Philadelphia, and finally experienced the War of the Worlds. And that moment was not only the start of where my obsession is today with War of the Worlds, but it was an immeasurable influence in nearly all the audio work I do today, including this special. In all this, I didn't mention the strong cast that is in this recording, mainly because I was so in awe of the story I didn't realize I was listening to famous actors, so that was so far secondary in my experience, it wasn't until some, I don't even know how many listens later that I started to recognize voices. This cast features Jason Robards, Rene Abergenois, Steve Allen, Hector Elizondo, Sidney Walker, news anchor Douglas Edwards, NPR host Terry Gross and Scott Simon, and Firesign Theater's Philip Proctor, 
which is another source of influence for many of us involved at neozaz.com. So, without any further ado, I am happy to now share the 1988 production of the War of the Worlds 50th Anniversary Broadcast. Coming up, two hours of vintage music for a Sunday night on Reminiscing in Tempo. I'm Rose Butler, and tonight I'll take you back 50 years to 1938. We were coming out of the Depression then. Business was better, more men were back at work, sales were picking up, and the big bands were thriving. Music from 1938. Stay with us. Rose will be coming right up on the fictional part of today's programming, which is supported in part by a major grant from McGavran Guild Radio. Stardrift, October 30th. It's a good night to see the South Pole on a world far beyond our own. More on that in a moment. Partial support for today's programming came from you, the listener, and from a grant from the Urban Jogger Investment Quality Shoes and Chocolates in a Meditational Environment. Stardrift, October 30th. The planet Mars has been in the news lately, having just made its closest approach to the Earth in 17 years. You'll find Mars in the eastern sky near Pisces much brighter than any nearby star. Its ice-capped south pole now faces us, looking like a white button on a rust-colored globe. If there were Martians, they would be enjoying summer in the southern hemisphere, a summer that might have once rivaled Earth's, with water rushing through the canyons and channels seen by Viking space probes. But now the channels are dry, and on the hottest day, the Martian air is still a chill 60 degrees. Our probes found no clear signs of life on the red planet, but of course, many people once believed that intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic regarded this Earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Stardrift is produced at Great Blue Hill Observatory in association with WGBH Boston. For the observatory... I'm Joe Bloke. Rose Butler with you for the next two hours. And tonight on Reminiscing in Tempo, I'm playing music from the year 1938, a time when all the radio networks broadcast live remotes from the ballrooms of the big hotels. And I've managed to dig up some rare air checks from exactly 50 years ago tonight. But before we get to the music... Let's take a look at the weather. Not much change in temperature for the next 24 hours. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia and is causing a low-pressure area to rapidly move down over the northeastern states, bringing us a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. The National Weather Service is predicting an overnight low of 48 degrees with a high tomorrow of 66. Our show tonight is made possible with a major grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Fifty years ago, in 1938, the audience surveys estimated that 32 million people were listening to their radios. Well, let's play something that we're actually listening to. At the end of October 1938, there was a live network radio broadcast from the Meridian Room of the Hotel Biltmore in downtown New York, where Ramon Raquello and his orchestra were playing dance music. And this is how they sounded. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room of the Hotel Biltmore in New York City, we bring you the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Ramon Raquello leads off with Rosita. I hate to interrupt the music, but we're going to join Public Radio News in Washington for a special news report. Then I'll be back with more music from 1938 on Reminiscing in Tempo. This is your listener-supported station for the information you need and the music you enjoy. I'm Gene Morgan. Two reports of explosions on Mars from astronomers in Princeton and in Chicago. Dr. George Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory says... They seem to come at regular intervals. There were several of them. Seem to be explosions of incandescent gas. We have Dr. Richard Pearson of Princeton Observatory with us. Dr. Pearson, you've seen these explosions? Yes. 
Really? Hydrogen gas moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun. Well, we'll keep track of this story, Dr. Pearson. Thank you. In Washington, this is Gene Morgan. We'll bring you any special reports the network offers throughout the evening. And, of course, tune in tomorrow morning at 6 for further coverage of those mysterious explosions. Well, why don't we just pick up where we left off with Ramon Raquello, as recorded 50 years ago tonight at the Biltmore Hotel in Manhattan. And now a tune that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. Okay, we're standing by for a follow-up report on those unusual disturbances on the planet Mars. We expect Carl Phillips to report live from the Princeton Observatory. That's coming up in about 30 seconds. Here on your listener-supported station, for the information you need and the music you enjoy. Uh, Let's just get in a little more music until public radio news is ready to go. This is a public radio news special report. Numerous explosions on the planet Mars tonight have piqued the curiosity of astronomers worldwide. At Princeton Observatory, Professor Richard Pearson is looking at Mars right now with public radio's Carl Phillips. I'm standing in the center of a large semicircular room, the observatory at Princeton. It was pitch dark in here until a split began to open in the dome, which has let in a sprinkling of stars that are casting a kind of frosty glow over this whole intricate mechanism of the 24-inch refracting telescope. The motors that you hear occasionally are pointing and focusing the scope. Professor Richard Pearson is standing directly above us on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. Now, besides his ceaseless watch of the heavens tonight, Professor Pearson is in constant touch with other astronomers worldwide through the Office of Astronomical Telegrams. Professor, may we begin our questions? At any time, Mr. Phillips. Sir, can you tell me exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. Rusty orange disk swimming in a black sea, dark bands across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be in opposition. Meaning it's at the point nearest the Earth? Yes. Now, in your opinion, Professor Pearson, what do those dark bands signify? Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips, although that has been the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of geological differences peculiar to the planet. So you are quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I should say the chances against it are millions to one. And yet, how do you account for those gas eruptions which are occurring on the surface of the planet at at such regular intervals? Mr. Phillips, I cannot account for it. Could could you refresh our memories as to how far Mars is from the Earth? Approximately 45 million miles. (laughs) That seems a safe enough distance. Excuse me, Dr. Pearson? Yes? I think you should see this. A message has just been handed to astronomer Richard Pearson here at the observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. Dr. Pearson is reading that message. Philip? He's handed it to us. May may we read this on the air? Certainly. It's a message from Dr., uh, Dr. Lloyd Gray at the Columbia Geophysical Observatory. And it reads, 9.15 Eastern Standard Time, seismograph registered a shock measured at 3.5 on the Richter scale, centered about 20 miles from Princeton. Can you investigate? Now, Professor Pearson, could, could this occurrence have anything to do with the disturbances on the planet Mars? Hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, I certainly will conduct a search. 
And, and may we join you on that search? Oh, if you don't mind tramping around in the middle of the night. <laughs> I, think, I think we're up to it if you are. <laughs> All right. Let's go. We'll be following this story for you in Princeton, New Jersey. This is Carl Phillips. You're listening to Public Radio News in Washington. Two more reports on the unusual explosions on the planet Mars. In Montreal, Canada, John Morse of Macmillan University has seen... Uh, is it three explosions, Professor? Uh, yes, three. Between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Well, that pretty much confirms the earlier reports from American observatories. I, I would think so, yes. Have you heard, sir, of the impact of a huge flaming object believed to be a meteorite on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey? That is news to me. Thank you for speaking with us, Dr. Uh, Thank you. The flash in the sky from that meteorite was visible for several hundred miles along the eastern seaboard. New Jersey State Trooper Captain Henry Quinlan has been besieged with calls. In Trenton here, our office has got hundreds. You could hear the noise as far north as Elizabeth. That's about, that was about 8.50 tonight. Just where is Grover's Mill, Captain? It's about 22 miles from Trenton. Grover's Mill is even closer to Princeton, about 11 miles, and Carl Phillips is on his way there. For Public Radio News, this is Gene Morgan in Washington. With Gene Morgan, I'm Rose Butler. Stay tuned for further news updates on those mysterious disturbances on Mars. Well, let's get back to more vintage music for a Sunday night. We're going to save the last part of the show for some of those requests you phoned in last week. In the meantime, we return to 1938, and I've got another hotel dance band air check, also recorded 50 years ago tonight. This is Bobby Millette in a broadcast recording from the Hotel Martinette in Brooklyn, New York. I think we're ready to rejoin Public Radio News with a live report from Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Carl Phillips. Princeton astronomer Richard Pearson and I have just arrived at the Wilmoth Farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This strange scene here is like something out of a modern Arabian Nights. There are car headlights and more arriving all the time that are throwing an enormous spot on on this thing that is directly in front of us. It's, it's half buried in a vast pit. Now, it must have struck with terrific force because the ground is covered with splinters of a tree that it must have hit on its way down. What I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. Certainly not like any meteor I've ever seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. It has a diameter of, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? What's the diameter, sir? About 30 yards. About 30 yards, according to Professor Pearson. Now, the metal on the sheet, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of a yellowish-white, and curious spectators are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of police to keep them back. Would, would you mind letting us through? Would you let us through, please? Policemen are trying to keep the crowd back, and P Professor Pearson is speaking with... Mr. Wilmoth. Mr. Wilmoth, who would be the owner of the farm here. Now, he, he may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmoth? Mr. Wilmoth, sir, we're, Mr. Wilmoth, sir, we're with Public Radio. Mr. Wilmoth, we're with Public Radio News. Can you tell us, sir, what you can remember of this visitor that dropped in on your backyard? Closer, Mr. Wilmoth. Closer, sir. Closer, please. Closer and louder, please, sir. A louder, louder. We have to hear you, sir. Closer. I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. Now, this professor fellow was talking about Mars, and I was half dozing right. and half... And but then what happened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, Tell as I was... I will, I'll tell him, I'll tell uh -huh. him. As I was saying, you see, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway. Right, you, you saw something, Mr. Wilmot? Well, not first off. I heard something. What is it you heard, sir? I heard a hissing sound like this. Kind of like a 4th of July rocket. And then, and then what? I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was to sleep and dreaming. Yeah? I seen, a, I seen a kind of greenish streak, and then zingo, something smacked the ground, knocked me clear out of my chair. Were, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmoth? <laughs> I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was... 
I reckon I was kind of riled. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Mr. Wilmer. Thank you you want me much. to tell you some more? No, no, sir. That's quite all right. That's all right. plenty. Thank all you. You're very welcome. Now, now, that was Mr. Wilmoth, who's the owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I, I wish I could convey to you the atmosphere of this fantastic scene. Hey, there are hundreds of cars that are parked in the field in oh, back of me. Oh. Police are trying to close oh, off the roadway that leads into the farm, but it, it's of no use because people are breaking right through. Some of the more daring souls are venturing near the edge of the pit, and, and their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. One man wants to touch the thing. He, he's having an argument with the policeman, and the policeman is winning. Now, now there's something I haven't mentioned in all of this excitement, but it is becoming more distinct, and, and maybe you've heard it already. Listen now. Do you, you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. Now, we're about 25 feet away from it. Professor Pearson? Uh, yes, Mr. Phillips. Could, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise that, that's coming from inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. Uh-huh. Do, do you think still that it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. Well, that location is definitely extraterrestrial. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. So, so what do you think it is? It's moving! Just just a minute, because something's happening. This, this is amazing. The, the end of the thing is, is beginning to flake off, and, and the top is rotating like a screw. There's men in it, and trying to escape. The, the thing, whatever it is, must be hollow. Wait a minute. So, someone's crawling out of the hollow top. Someone, someone or something is, is peering out of that black hole. There are two luminous discs. Are, are they eyes? It, it, it might be a face. Oh, good heavens. So, no, something is wiggling out of the shadow like, like a gray snake. Now it's another one. Now another. They, they look like tentacles. Now we, we can see the thing's body. It's, it's large as a bear and glistens like wet leather, but... That, that face is, is indescribable. I can, I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped. The saliva is dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. The alien, or whatever it is, can hardly move. It seems weighed down maybe by gravity or something. The thing is raising up. And the crowd is falling back. This is enough. This is the most incredible experience. You can't find the words to convey this. We're going to have to move back and kind of take cover from some brain. You're listening to Public Radio News in Washington. This is listener-powered public radio. And remember, it's your contributions that make it possible for us to bring you these special reports. So thanks for your support during our last fundraising drive. Now don't forget to honor your pledge and mail in that check. And thanks. This is a special report from Grover's Mill, New Jersey, and our correspondent, Carl Phillips. We on? Are we back on? Uh, we're in back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden now. And, and from here I have a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail, as long as I can talk, as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're, they're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. There are about 30 of them. There's no need to push back the crowd now because they're quite willing to keep their distance. The, the captain is conferring with, with someone. I can't quite see who. Uh, yeah, I believe it, it is Professor Pearson. It is indeed Professor Pearson. Now they've parted. The professor is, is moving around to one side. He's studying the object while the captain and two policemen are advancing with something in their hands. I, I can see it now. It, it is, it's a white handkerchief tied to a pole, a, a flag of truce, I suppose, if, if those creatures know what that means or, or what anything means. A, a hump shape a hump shape is rising out of the pit. I can, I can make out a small beam of light against the mirror. What, 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 Jet of flame! springing from that mirror, it leaps right at the advancing men and strikes them head on. Oh, good Lord, they're turning into flames. And now the whole field's caught fire. The woods are barred, the, the gas tanks of automobiles are blowing up. It's spreading everywhere. It's coming, coming this way. It's about 20 yards away. 
It appears that we are temporarily unable to continue our broadcast from Grover's Mill due to circumstances beyond our control. There seems to be some problem with the satellite transmission. We'll rejoin Carl Phillips and Public Radio News as soon as we can reestablish our connection. Until then, it's more Dean Morgan. vintage music. This is a oh, Public oh, okay. Radio I think News we got special report on the controversial Martian explosions. The American Planetary Society is having its annual conference in San Diego, California this weekend. Science reporter Mike Scholar has more. Professor Gustav Indelkoffer spoke at tonight's Planetary Society meeting and expressed the opinion that the explosions are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet Mars, which continues to dominate the night's news. In San Diego, this is Mike Scholar reporting. Police reports from New Jersey are saying that at least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill, their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the New Jersey National Guard, is at the armory in Trenton, where he's giving a statement to the press. Requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as far west as Princeton and, and east to Jamesburg under martial law. Now, no one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or uh, military authorities. Four country companies of the, of the Guard are, are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and will aid in the evacuation of homes uh, within the range of military operations. Thank you. Now, no more questions at this time. We have no further statement now. General Montgomery Smith, commanding the National Guard at Trenton. Further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in, as United Wire correspondent Alice Fallon reports. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back into the pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the emergency teams to recover the bodies and put out the fire. Combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames, which menace the entire countryside. Reporter Alice Fallon. As yet, we have been unable to reestablish our microwave link with Grover's Mill. Uh, yes. But we have established communication with an eyewitness to the tragedy. Astronomer Richard Pearson is at a farmhouse where an emergency observation post has been set up. Our audio is from the Satellite News Network. Here at the farmhouse, Dr. Pearson has been speaking with the authorities here and now is answering questions from a throng of reporters. Please, 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 wait a minute, will you? Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information. Well, who, who? Except, uh, no, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purpose here on Earth. Maybe they're red. Is this laser technology, Now, it is all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. Dr. Pearson, what was their weapon like? A heat ray. It's my guess that in some way they're able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition. That was Professor Richard Pearson, eyewitness to the alien invasion weapon and the killing of many, many New Jersey citizens tonight near Grover's Mill. And we do have this information that public radio reporter Carl Phillips was among those bodies identified tonight at a Trenton hospital. And that's what we have from here, Steve. Thank you, Mary. This is a Satellite Network special report on the apparent alien invasion of New Jersey. From the office of the director of the Red Cross in Washington, D.C., this report. Ten units of emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside Grover's Mill. And from state police headquarters in Princeton Junction, we learn that the fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity have been brought under control and that airborne observers report all quiet in the pit and no sign of life appearing from the, uh, the mouth of the cylinder. Uh, now we're going to field headquarters of the New Jersey National Guard where a press briefing has just begun. That's right, Steve. Uh, this is Mobile Division HQ of the New Jersey National Guard and Captain Victor Lansing is in charge here. He's with a public affairs detachment and he's told me that we are presently engaged in a military operation 
right here in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Now, what's the situation, Captain? Well, sir, this uh, situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The uh, cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, that is surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, and our uh, Huey attack unit is moving in now. So, uh, all cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is entirely unjustified. 27 the, uh, degrees! The things, uh, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. You can see their uh, hiding place there, yes. plainly in the glare of the searchlight here. Uh, with all their reported resources, these uh, creatures can hardly stand up against these weapons. So, so then everything is under control, is that right? Well, <laughs> let me say, it's an interesting outing for the troops. Yes. As we can see, they're busy <laughs> digging in here. Uh, it, 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 it looks almost like real war. The right. A company is deploying on the left flank. Uh, quick thrust and lobby over. Is that a fire out there toward the Millstone River? Probably campers. That, now, wait a minute. I, I, I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. The, the troops on the edge of the Wilmot Farm now. There are 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tub. <laughs> wait, that, that's not a shadow. It's something moving there. It's solid metal there. Yes. Kind of a shield-like affair rising yes. up out of the cylinder. It's, You're right. It's going higher and higher. It's standing on two sides. Sit up above it. Young lads, take cover! This is the Satellite Network Nighttime Report on the alien invasion of New Jersey. I'm joined by our senior commentator, Douglas Edwards, and this has been a terrible event we've been witnessing here. Steve, yes, incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The brief battle which took place just a short time ago at Grover's Mill has ended in a startling defeat. 7,000 men armed with machine guns and other weapons pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders, dead. The latest report just in to me, 120 known survivors. The rest is strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster or burned to cinders by the laser-like heat ray. Uh, Doug, excuse me. This story seems to be worsening by the moment. We hear now that the monster is in control of the middle section of New Jersey. It's effectively cut the state through the center. Uh, Communications are disrupted from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean, and the rail lines from New York to Philadelphia have been torn up, accounting for an Amtrak derailment near Trenton. The highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reservists called out to control the mad flight are themselves now Steve, on the right. I think we can assume that by morning the fugitives will swell Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton to twice their normal populations. Excuse me, Doug. At this time, martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. And uh, we'll go now to Washington, the White House, for a statement on what seems now to be a national emergency. Here is the Vice President. My fellow Americans, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, on all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, Placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on earth. I thank you. 
There you have it, the vice president flown back to the capital from Texas, where he was preparing to attend one last major rally before Tuesday's election. This action, by the way, Steve, may prove to be an asset to his standing in the polls. <laughs> yes. Bulletins too numerous to read have been piling up here. We've been informed that the central portion of New Jersey is completely blacked out due to the effect of the heat ray weapons and power lines, electrical equipment, and so forth. Overseas satellite communications are also out, but from radio and telephone reports, we understand that there have been possible landings near London, Paris, and Moscow. Mount Wilson Observatory in Pasadena reports gas eruptions at regular intervals on the planet Mars, and that would appear to be evidence of reinforcement rockets. We've been attempting to reestablish our link with Dr. Pearson of Princeton, who was among the first to see the Martians, but we fear he may have been a casualty of renewed fighting. And this just in from Langley Air Force Base outside of Washington. Observation aircraft report three Martian machines moving north toward the Somerville area with a panicked population fleeing ahead of them. Now that heat ray that they used with such effect earlier tonight seems not to be in use. The observers report the machines are moving at high rates of speed, but they seem to be picking their way carefully, making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities or countryside. However, they are stopping to uproot power lines, smash bridges, and to crush highways. I'm convinced, Steve, that their objective is to eliminate resistance, paralyze communication, and to disorganize human society. Very bad news, Doug. We join correspondent George Spelvin in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Uh, this is very disturbing information. Earlier this evening, hunters stumbled on a second cylinder embedded in the Great Swamp, 20 miles south of Morristown. Now we have the National Guard moving artillery along this highway in an attempt to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened and the fighting machines rigged. They're moving past my position along Interstate 287. Yeah, uh, towards the foothills of the Wachung Mountains. We can't get any closer, and that's all they're telling us for now. Thank you, George. Is that more bad news, Doug? Steve, I'm afraid it is. From Langley, airborne observers report the number of enemy machines has now increased to three north of New Brunswick, with more observed east of Middlesex. They've also picked up speed and are kicking over houses and trees, evidently hastening to form a conjunction with their allies south of Morristown in the suburbs of Newark. Yes. Well, we have some good news at last. Langley has finally scrambled a squadron of fighter bombers to rendezvous with the rapidly moving enemy. Well, that ought to end the matter, at least locally. Yes, I hope so. And now we'll hear directly from Langley Tower Communications. 
Jersey calling Langley Field. Come in, please. Come in, please. This is Langley. Go ahead. Eight bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in the direction of... Communications along the route of the enemy tripod machines in New Jersey ceased uh, 10 minutes ago. Initial assaults on the machines by Air Force fighter bombers and army units have ended in disaster. All units wiped out, planes destroyed. There's been no further attack. This uh, may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here till the end. Across Fifth Avenue, Below us, people are holding service in the cathedral. And now, looking at the Hudson River, we see all manner of boats uh, overloaded with the fleeing population still pulling away from the docks. Streets are all jammed. The noise of the crowd reminds us of New Year's Eve in this great city. Wait a minute. Yeah, enemy machines come into view now above the Palisades, two, three, five great machines. The first one is wading into the Hudson, crossing the river like a man wading through a brook. I'll repeat the latest I have. Martian cylinders have been falling all across the country. One outside Washington, another in Chicago, one in St. Louis, as far west as Seattle and Los Angeles, and they seem to be timed and spaced to cut off communication and neutralize our armed response, but now, the first machine reaches the shore at about uh, 30th Street. He stands watching, looking over the city. His steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. Now they rise like a line of new towers on the west side. They're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Uh, smoke comes out, black smoke, drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. Thousands are dropping into the East River. The smoke's spreading faster now. It, it, it's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it, it's no use. They're falling like flies. <coughs> now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. Fifth Avenue, rising up from the plaza. It's about a hundred yards. It's 50... F <coughs> 50... F CQ. 2X2L. 
Calling CQ. New York. Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? 2X, 2L. Calling CQ. 2X, 2L. Calling CQ. Testing, one, two, three. Testing. Pearson, continuing notes from October 30th. I'm obsessed with the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. Richard Pearson. I look at my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tattered clothes, and I try to connect them with a, a professor who lives, used to live, in Princeton, who on the night of October 30th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? Am I? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? By making this, I tell myself I will preserve human history on a thread of tape that was meant to record movements of the stars. <laughs> Speak, I must live. To live, I must eat. I found an orange, not too spoiled to swallow. Another one. I keep watch at the window. From time to time, a Martian appears above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil. Hissing sound. The Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam, dissipates the smoke. Uh, oh, huge metal legs. Rush against the house! Pearson. Woke a few minutes ago, still exhausted by terror. Good morning. Sun streaming through the windows. Black cloud of gas is lifted. Scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm had passed over them. feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. Wrecked car here, the baggage overturned. Blackened skeleton. Pushing on north, keeping a careful watch. I have seen the Martians feed. One of their machines appears over the top of the trees. I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. I found a chestnut tree. Mm -hmm. October. Chestnuts are ripe. Fill my pockets. Keep alive. It's been two days, wandering in a vague, northerly direction through a desolate world, and finally, a living creature. Here, a small red squirrel in a peach tree. I'm staring at him in wonder. He's staring back at me. And at this moment, I believe the animal and I share the same emotion, the joy 
of finding another living being. <laughs> oh. Pushing north. Dead cows in a brackish field. And now the charred ruins of a dairy. Silo remains standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse deserted by the sea. Stride the silo perched a weathercock. The arrow points north. I've reached the outskirts of, of a city, vaguely familiar in its contours, and yet its buildings are strangely dwarfed and leveled off. As if a giant had sliced off the highest towers with a sweep of his hand. Newark. Newark. Undemolished, but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. I have the odd feeling of being watched. I thought. Someone. Right. Stay still or I'll cut your throat. Where did you come from? I come from many places. A long time ago from Princeton. To Princeton? Yeah. That's near Grover's Mill? Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> there's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down to the river, there's only food for one. Where are you going? I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm looking for, for people. What was that? Did you hear something just then? Only a bird, a live bird. You get to know that birds have shadows these days. Wait a minute. We're in the open here. Let's crawl into this doorway and talk, right? Come on. gone over to New York. At night, the sky is alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. <laughs> They've got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. So we're done. We're licked. So you're in uniform. Where were you? I was in the militia, National Guard. <laughs> That's good. Wasn't any war anymore. Then there's war between men and ants. We're edible ants. I found that out. What will I do with this? Oh, right now we're caught as we wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run, but they won't keep doing that. Yeah. They'll begin catching a systematic, like keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us, not, not begun. Not begun. Uh, not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet, bothering them with guns. <laughs> now, instead of our rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. But if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any. Any more concerts for a million years or so, and, and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. And what is there left? Life. That's what. I want to live. And so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either and tamed and fattened, bred like an ox. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We, see, we men as men are finished. We don't know enough. We gotta learn plenty before we've got a chance. And we've got to live and keep free while we learn. I've thought it all out, see. How are the rest? Oh, you see now, it, is, it, see, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. And, and that's what it's got to be. That's why I watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff to them. They just used to run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running wild to catch their commuter trains in the morning, afraid they'd get canned if they didn't, afraid they won't be home in time for dinner, afraid about the hereafter. Now the Martians will be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding, no worries. 
After a week or so, chasing around the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? You bet I have. And that isn't all. These Martians will make pets of some of us. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had, had to be killed. And some, maybe, they'll train to hunt us. No, that's impossible. No human... Yes, yes, that. they will. Oh, yes, they will. There's men who'll do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me... In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the Earth? I've got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York are miles and miles of them. The main ones are big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to, you begin to see, and we'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weak ones. That rubbish out. As you meant me to go. Well, I gave you a chance, didn't I? We won't quarrel about that. Go on. Gotta make safe places for us to stay and see and get all the books we can. Science books. We'll raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. It may not be so much we have to learn before. Now, j just, just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left and not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, but men. Men who have learned the way how it may even be in our time. Now imagine having one of them lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. I mean, we, we turn it on the Martians. We turn it on men. We bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan? You and me. And a few more of us. We'd own the world. I see. What's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Goodbye, stranger. Now, wait a minute. Now, well, wait a minute! Alone on Times Square, I've walked here through the Holland Tunnel. I just caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. He made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove to be a fresh competitor. On 14th Street, there were drifts of black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. More of the same as I wandered uptown through the 30s and 40s. Silent shop windows displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. The theater, silent, dark. Broken glass everywhere from the smashed doors and windows. Cars crushed by the feet of the Martian machines. Columbus Circle, flock of birds, blackbirds over the park, circling. More birds now, flying over the white marble bones of Lincoln Center, vultures. I'm hidden behind a tree on a small hill overlooking the mall. Not a long, silent row of them, 10, 15, 16, 19, 19 of those great metal titans, steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides, hoods gleaming. But I look in vain for the monsters that inhabit the machines. An immense flock of birds hovering, circling to the ground. Richard Pearson, continuing notes, begun October 30th at Grover's Mill. The laboratory reports are conclusive. The Martians were killed by ordinary bacteria, the diseases against which their alien systems were unprepared. Slain after all our defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God in his wisdom put upon this earth. 
Before the first cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. I have conjured up in my mind a dim and wonderful vision of life, spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastness of space, a remote dream. It may be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve. To them, and not to us, is the future ordained, perhaps. Strange it now seems to sit here in my peaceful study in Princeton, seeing the university spires dim and blue through my window in an April haze. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers entering the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright, clean-cut, hard and silent under the dawn of that last great day. You've heard Jason Robards starring in the War of the Worlds 50th Anniversary production. Also starring Steve Allen, Rene Aubergenois, Douglas Edwards, Hector Elizondo, Terry Gross, Philip Proctor, Scott Simon, and Sidney Walker. With Mary Diltz, Charles Martinet, Joe Paulino, Don West, and students, faculty, and families from San Francisco Theological Seminary. The War of the Worlds was written by Howard Koch, suggested by the H.G. Wells novel. Adapted by David Osman, with additional dialogue by Terry Gross, Michael Scholar, and members of the company. Recorded by Randy Tom at Skywalker Ranch and on location. Additional recording by Melanie Burzon, Andy Hannes, Stephen Erickson, and Steve Schultes. It was mixed by Randy Tom and Tom Johnson at Sprocket Systems. Incidental music by Jeff Bruner, David Casper, and Anthony Harris. Vintage music, courtesy of RCA Victor Records. Carmelita Loggerwell was unit manager. Elaine Davies, unit publicist. Sharon Tom, continuity. Janie Bennett, assistant to the director. Mary Fallon and Susan Sanford, production assistants. Orson Broderick Osmond, best boy. Our thanks to the entire support staff of Sprocket Systems and Skywalker Ranch, to stations WNYC and WFSU, Adele Anthony, San Francisco Theological Seminary, Lon Neumann, and Sony Communications Products. Rene Aubergenois and Hector Elizondo appeared courtesy of L.A. Classic Theater Works. The War of the World's 50th Anniversary production was funded by major grants from the Gavron Guild Radio and the National Endowment for the Arts. It was directed by David Osman, sound designed by Randy Tom, executive producer Judith Walcott, presented by WGBH Boston. This has been a production of Other World Media. That does it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I have found other audio versions of War of the Worlds that I've since called my favorites, but none of those other broadcasts of the War of the Worlds radio drama has had the impact on me and the impact on the work that I do more than the one you just heard. War of the Worlds week for 2018 continues with the War of the Worlds 80th anniversary special, a detailed look at everything that went into making that historic 1938 broadcast and if you think we've already covered all that in our past specials during our War of the Worlds week, let me tell you now, those past episodes have barely scratched the surface of that story. That'll be out tomorrow if you're listening to these shows as they're released. If you're from the future and listening to these after those release dates, you'll find it next in your feed. And if you don't see it, then just head over to neozaz.com for that and all of our War of the Worlds related specials. We're in our third year of our annual War of the Worlds week, and there's a pretty decent library in the subject now at this point. Of course, while you're there, check out all the work we do at neozaz.com. A lot of what the network, if not all the network, is built on pop culture and nostalgia and a mixture of our nostalgia for pop culture. So if there's something that you have an interest in in pop culture, chances are we may have a series about it. At the very least, we probably have a special or an episode featuring that particular thing. So go to neozaz.com to check that out and follow our social media pages to keep up with the things we do. Between episode releases, we are Neozaz Podcast on Facebook, Neozaz on Twitter, and Neozaz on Instagram. That is it. Thank you, of course, for listening. I will be back with the next installment for the 2018 War of the Worlds Week. So until then, I will see you in that next episode. Next episode.